0: Well, hey there, everybody. Welcome to Gather and Go, the podcast that helps you plan, promote, and lead better trips. My name is Brian Jewell. I am your host. And as we approach this Thanksgiving holiday, I am filled with gratitude that you have decided to spend some of your time with us again this week. And as always, our promise to you is that we're going to make that investment of your time worthwhile. And today we are going to do that through a fabulous and fascinating conversation with the one and only Bruce Poon Tip of G Adventures. If you don't know Bruce, he is a visionary in the tourism space. Many of the things uh, that we all enjoy today in terms of community impact when we travel around the world are things that Bruce thought of 30 years ago. And uh, we're going to talk today about his vision for how people all over the world can use tourism to uplift communities and make the world a better place for everyone. You are not going to want to miss that. Before we get there, though, let's talk about some travel news you may have missed. Now, in the past few weeks, all eyes have been on election results, and while many of you have been busy watching the returns for congressional races or gubernatorial races around the country, you may have missed some interesting results from a ballot initiative that showed up. In many communities throughout Colorado. Numerous Colorado communities voted to divert some hospitality tax from tourism promotion to fund local initiatives. Now, ballot measures to increase lodging tax were passed in Estes Park, Glenwood Springs, Dillon, and a number of other places and counties throughout Colorado. Now, similar measures failed to pass in Grand Junction, Centennial, and Hudson, among other places. So municipalities that pass this tax increase plan to use these funds to fund affordable housing and other community projects in their cities. Uh, Estes Park, for example, is the most popular destination that passed the initiative. And there, the city will levy an additional 3.5% lodging tax on top of the existing lodging tax that has already been in place for some time. Uh, The local DMO, Visit Estes Park, supported the initiative, and 63% of voters voted in favor of the measure, so it turned out to be quite popular there in Estes Park, winning by quite a wide margin. Now, this was all possible thanks to a new law passed by the Colorado legislature and signed by the governor, which allows municipalities to let their voters decide how to allocate as much as 90% of lodging tax proceeds in their municipalities. Now so far it looks like uh, these voters have decided not to take money from existing lodging taxes and divert it, but rather to increase taxes so that they can do some things around the community in addition to continuing to fund tourism. Interesting development, interesting idea. Uh, We'll see if it catches on in other destinations around the country and how it impacts travel and tourism promotion. Next up is our road tip segment. This is a part of every episode where we share some things that we have picked up from uh, our time on the road and the many friends of ours that we know who work in tourism that could help make your travel experience a little bit better. Today's road tip comes courtesy of my friend Elaine. Hi, Elaine. Uh, She shared a very interesting approach to how she prepares her morning coffee In hotel rooms that I thought I would share with you. Now, full disclosure here, I don't drink coffee because, well, uh, it tastes like rancid dirt water, but I understand that it's popular and that many of you can't imagine starting your day without it. And if that's you, you might benefit from hearing what Elaine does when she travels. Now, Elaine has been a uh, tour director for decades. She's very involved in travel. She's on the road a lot. And what she told me on a recent trip is that she does not use the in-room coffee in her hotel rooms. She doesn't use the coffee maker. She doesn't use the little K-cups. She doesn't use whatever they provide for a variety of reasons that I guess make sense if you're a coffee drinker. Uh, She has some concerns about the taste. She has some concerns about how it works. She may not feel like it is clean. I understand all that. So what Elaine does instead is she packs in her suitcase a small portable coffee maker now this is a super cool device it is made of that kind of silicone rubbery material so this coffee pot actually collapses flat to be stored easily in a suitcase it has a built-in electric heating unit so when she's ready to make her coffee she pulls out this portable coffee maker expands it fills it with water and adds her coffee grounds plugs it in and before you know it Her coffee is ready. It's exactly the kind of coffee she wants to drink. She doesn't have to depend on the hotel's machinery, the hotel's coffee brand. She doesn't have to go downstairs to the coffee shop and spend $8 on a fancy brew. She gets exactly what she wants. So if you are a coffee drinker, if you can't imagine starting your day without it, I think that's a pretty cool idea. And since this piece of equipment collapses into something that's maybe only an inch or so tall you can probably find room for it in your carry-on. So that is the tip of the week. Coffee drinkers, don't say I never did anything for you because this might just change your life on the road. Next up, I wanna share some news from us. We are hard at work on the Go South Travel Planner that will appear in the January issue of the Group Travel Leader magazine. Now, it's no surprise, the South is one of the most popular tourism regions around the country. Groups love going there, and there is always an abundance of new things to write about, to showcase, to talk about in the American South. If you plan travel for groups, if you are interested in going anywhere from Kentucky to Arkansas, Alabama, Florida, Virginia, West Virginia, anywhere in the South, well, this is going to be an indispensable resource you as you plan group trips there in 2023 and beyond. Now, if you don't already subscribe to the Group Travel Leader, well, I've got good news. You can subscribe absolutely free on our website. That is grouptravelleader.com. I'll also link to that in the show notes to make it easy for you to find. You can subscribe there. And if you do that today, you will be on the mailing list in time to get the January issue of the magazine in your mailbox. Or if you prefer, simply in your email inbox and of course you'll also get uh, all the other fantastic resources that we provide to group travel planners throughout the year now if you promote travel maybe at a cbb or a tour company and you would like to be part of the go south travel planner well you can make that happen by calling our sales department that is kyle and bryce you can reach them at 888-253-0455 they will tell you all about how we can make sure you are part of the Go South Travel Planner in January. Now, it is almost time to get into our conversation with Bruce Tip. Before we do, though, I want to encourage you to hang around to the end of the interview. Because at the end, I'm going to return to this idea about tourism destinations, pulling funding from lodging tax and applying it to other things. I have some thoughts about that trend I'm going to share them in today's hot minute. You won't want to miss that. We'll be right back with Bruce Poon Tip. All right, everybody. My guest today is an entrepreneur, philanthropist, and the founder of G Adventures, an award winning small group adventure travel company operating more than 750 tours in 100 countries his work with nonprofits like-minded companies and indigenous people has led to more than 100 community development projects being supported globally meaning 90 percent of travelers on a g adventures tour visit a social enterprise project he is bruce poontip bruce welcome to the podcast great
1: thanks for having me
0: good to be here yeah we're excited to have you you have one of the most unique origin stories in tourism, certainly that I've ever heard. So I would love for you to take our readers and listeners back to that backpacking trip uh, so long ago that really changed your life. Tell us what that trip was and what happened to you.
1: Yeah, I mean, first you have to, to, I guess, look at the time. So this is going back to 1989 and 1990. Mm. So travel is very different, how people research travel, how people book travel, how people actually traveled. In those days, you had a choice between a mainstream holiday or you went backpacking. You got a guidebook and went backpacking on your own. And so that's what I did. I got a, a guidebook and I went out on the road. And it was during that time that I realized, you know, that there was opportunities. I had my eureka moment, I guess, as an entrepreneur. I, I didn't necessarily want to backpack, but I had no choice if I didn't want to, you know, do a compound resort or a bus tour or a cruise, um, that was, which were the only opportunities at that stage to travel you'd have to backpack and and organize everything on your own. And I thought there's just a, you know, there's a blue ocean there in the middle Mm. uh, of, you know, young professionals with disposable income and time that want more culturally focused, cultural immersion type experiences, which is what backpacking kind of offered, but organized and comfortable. And that's was the, you know, it was while I was on the road that I had that moment where I met a lot of people on the road and there was this, you know, everyone was kind of in limbo in the space in the middle of, you know, mainstream and the backpacker, I just visualized that there would be a market there.
0: Yeah. And so you met all these people and you came home, obviously probably inspired by the trip because travel is almost yeah. always inspiring on its own, but you also came home inspired by the people you met and the potential market you saw. So mm-hmm. uh, I know you kind of went out on a limb, you took some big risks. Tell us about that, that process of turning it from, I see some potential to I'm starting a company. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Well, I mean, it was very grassroots and, you know, guerrilla marketing to start. So, mm. um, you know, I got a, I, I put some tours together, some the concept together. You know, it was kind of an organized backpacking, if you would. I got friends that were going to actually be my first tour leaders that were going to mm. be the first people to guide the trips. You know, I, I just started doing talks everywhere. I went to schools and you know colleges and travel, you know, travel schools and universities. And I used to talk at outdoor stores, you know, outdoor clothing stores. I had long-standing kind of, you know, different nights a week. I would speak at different outdoor clothing stores and they would advertise through the week. And I would spend my week kind of kind of getting people to come and see these talks, you know, because it was really revolutionary what we were doing because no one had ever heard of this kind of travel. When you talk, when you talk, when you tried to sell someone a tour of Thailand, you know, they visualized that as a coach tour. And yeah. what we were doing is using local transportation, local accommodations, family run accommodations, small scale accommodations. And it was going to be a much richer Um, you know, grassroots type of experience. And so that's really, so I had to get in front of people to explain to them, you know, what we were doing. And I got my first six people to sign up for um, uh, one of our programs Uh, to Ecuador was our first trip. And, Mm -hmm. you know, a friend of mine kind of took a leave of absence from his job. And, um, but that, that was really it. So, and then we got our first groups off in, you know, 1990, like late 90 and into 1991, and more, you know, they told their friends and I got invited to more and more colleges because people were starting to hear about, you know, and it was a lot of tourism colleges and mm-hmm. travel programs in in colleges and universities. And they were interested to learn more about it and in the summer take trips. And so that's how it started.
0: So uh, I imagine you had a, a, a goal in mind or maybe a couple of goals in mind. So, you know, I, I think about what the company does today and you have, you know, very cornerstone principles in terms of sustainability and you know, uh, responsible tourism, economic development, were those things all on your radar already back in 1990, or did you have kind of a, a much more limited vision?
1: Yeah, it was a much more limited vision. I have to say, I mean, I, 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 I wish I could say that I was that forward thinking, but you know, the idea of an entrepreneur didn't even exist. Like people mm-hmm. didn't throw around the un, the word entrepreneur back then. Like there was, we didn't have 27 year old billionaires. Right. And so, um, so the idea that I was starting my own business was already in itself somewhat of a renegade thing to do. Mm. Um, and so, no. So the whole concept really was always like when I think back at it, we, we always were really in, there was always this community dialogue and community development. And it was really in our third or fourth year, it was like like 93, 94 and maybe even to 1995 when the first we first heard the term ecotourism. And, and people started to suddenly identify us with ecotourism, but we didn't identify with ecotourism because we were so focused on culture and people at that stage where is ecotourism was really focused on environment. Mm-hmm. And so that's when the two things started to merge. And then from that came responsible travel, then sustainable tourism and those, and, and that side of tourism where, you know, being actually caring about the destinations, whether it's through environment and through planet protection, or cultural heritage preservation, or poverty alleviation—all these things started coming together, and um, tourism could be, a, you know, a, a way to alleviate poverty. And people thought, like, this is, you know, it's a revolutionary thing. Like, no one ever thought of that. I just want to go on holidays, and the, the, the traditional holiday was a week on the beach. I just pay so I can eat and drink as, as much as I want for a week. And suddenly, we were asked, we were asking for for people to want more out of their holiday. And that was, and that was the change. And that was, so we started first doing our first community project work in 1996. That's when we partnered with Conservation International mm-hmm. and um, an organizations like Rainforest Alliance, the Ford Foundation, these organizations. I spoke at the UN that year for the first time. And, um, and so, and so. Th- so the idea started to kind of, kind of, kind of grow and we were kind of still lumped in that ecotourism definition, mm-hmm. but I, I had very strict orders on all of our people that we never mentioned ecotourism, any literature mm-hmm. because we didn't really identify it with it exclusively because so we were really focused on people and cultures Yeah, because we were creating relationships with local communities. And it just over time, as we became successful, they became successful. And for the first time we saw, you know, the evolution of, you know, social enterprise and poverty alleviation right before our eyes. We were the first ones creating a relationship with communities, creating a dialogue with communities and making sure all, you know, services were fair trade services. People were being paid in hand for services, as opposed to going through some kind of local operator, paying slave wages out to local people. Mm -hmm. Um, And as we grew, there was an invested interest. And it was the first elements of kind of community tourism where everyone everyone would rise as we became successful.
0: Yeah. So I'd love for you to help me unpack that. And I'm, let me throw out a scenario that I think could be typical for a lot of North Americans who are not deeply invested in travel, who who don't think about travel the way you and I do every day. Um, They say, okay, well, I I would like to take that trip to Thailand, let's say. Uh, And there are a half dozen companies that I can do that with. And if I do that, I'm going to stay in some hotels and I'm going to eat in some restaurants and I'm going to have a few guided tours, and you know, people all along the way. Locals are going to make some money from me being there. So, um, what what is that person missing? Um, how was their vision limited uh, in that traditional mindset compared to a much more community focused tour paradigm?
1: Well, it's it's really to do with how you book it uh, or with the operators that you use. It just takes a little bit of you know extra, you know, asking questions where your money is going and, and companies should know where their money is going. If they can't answer those questions, you know, that they're not doing very much or if they're just donating to a big traditional NGO, you know, you travel with us and we're given to UNICEF. I mean, that's great, but it really isn't creating community development and community tourism and local mm-hmm. people aren't, aren't, aren't um, benefiting from you being there immediately. Or if, mm-hmm. you know, if they're kind of connected to these, you know, big organizations um, then it, it, you you can be more suspicious that, you know, um, you know, where is your money going? Where's the ownership of this business? And are they truly taking those things into consideration? Mm-hmm. You know, cause, um, you know, you know, some companies are, are now saying they're, you know, carbon neutral. This is so important, but how are they really doing that? Like, if you're just calling a consultant, who's just kind of, you know, figuring out your carbon emissions to allow you to, to make a mess here, as long as they're like investing in some kind of carbon offset here kind of balances the earth like those kind of things are not you know it's not science and it uh, and everyone has to kind of just ask questions and and do whatever they feels comfortable for them for some people that's enough but for some people when they ask questions and they actually go with a company that actually has impact and has a positive impact and it's it's kind of an intrinsic part of their business model
0: yeah, no, that's really important. So, I'd love for you to take us to one of the hundred countries where you guys are operating right now. Pick a country, pick a community uh, that you love to go to with your travelers and tell us about some of the impact you're making in the community and the intentional effort that has gone into creating and sustaining those relationships.
1: Yeah. Okay. That's an amazing question that I've never been asked for before, Brian. So, thank you for asking it because I'll just step you through. Uh, you know, I can just look at India, for instance. India is a good example. So, when you arrive in India, we have a, a program called Women on Wheels. Mm. Women on Wheels works with marginalized women who are in shelters. We give them an 18-month training program. And at the end of their graduation, they learn how to drive and they get a car. Nothing empowers women more than mobility. Mm. So they get a car and they do all of our arrival transfers when you arrive mm. in India. So Women on Wheels. And these women are all single mothers. and They, they were in shelters prior. And they've been through the program and they're now chauffeurs. Um, and drivers for all of our rival chapters. That's number one. So, day two, your first day is a city tour. And every company has a city tour on day one. But years mm-hmm. ago, we formed the Salem, we work with Salem Black Trust, which is Street Kids Home. And the street kids are trying to repurpose their lives, learn to speak English because they're going for scholarships to study. In, and, and we have a high success rate of, of these kids that are, you know, at five are found in the streets and at 14, 15, 16 we're able to, you know, put them in this, um, our city tour program. Mm. There's an amazing training program and all of our city tours are done by, um, the the Salenberg trust street kids. Um, and through that, they learn English. It's a cultural and they, and they get to show you the city from their view, their eyes. It's it's an amazing experience. So you might go for dinner at, um, um, kitchen with a cause, Mm. which is a G values fund project that we invested with, um, Ex-employees of ours that were CEOs for many years, and, and instead of retiring, we want to keep those, the, the people with us. They started a business. And Kitchen with the Cause actually hires a lot of the street kids from Salem Black Trust, puts them through a, a two-year um, training program working in a kitchen, and we have 100 percent employment of food and beverage on the other side, in the in the in the in the hospitality industry on the other side. But it's a constant rotating training program. All of our groups come in there for lunch, dinners, um, and the, and all the whole kitchens are run by the, for, through the street kids program and they get jobs on the other end in hospitality. And we have uh, many different projects like that. Um, we have, you know, different experiences you can, you can do with different G values fund programs we have, like, a, uh, like with a local NGO, mm-hmm. like, um, in, like our Oodles of Noodles program, which is in, it's in Vietnam where, you know, you were you again, it's a street kids program. It's a training kitchen program. It's an employment program. Um, but our, our groups go in and spend the afternoon at a, at a market, shop for fresh ingredients, come back to a cooking school where the kids teach you how to make uh, lunch with noodles. You make fresh noodles, fresh pot of noodles season. And that's uh, another one of our many projects that we have. So uh, and then we have them all over the world. I mean, in Africa, there's one of our, my favorite ones is you know, we have these African safari vehicles with young people It's are 18 to 30 something. And they, they, they go on 50 day tours across Africa. Wow. And laundry service is a big thing. And we work with local women in communities where we stop instead of paying a laundry laundromat or a laundry company in a hotel, which is just mindless or unconscious. We can work with the local community that's laundry for our, our, our customers and it supports the entire community and employs women at the same time. Uh, what, doing laundry for our customers who are or our, our young customers on these long overland Africa trips, uh, who need laundry done periodically, and we can create community projects around these kind of services.
0: Yeah, that's fantastic. So I, I kind of can see um, some people, even domestically, who maybe run uh, domestic uh, small group tours in their city. Uh, maybe they're a, a local receptive or something like that. I can I can see them. Hearing this and saying that's amazing, I would love to see something like that in Birmingham, Alabama, Vancouver—take your pick. But they say you have you have built very deep relationships, and it's not just you didn't just show up and develop product, but you really developed relationships. So, yeah. how does it's community. how does it's creating community—that's how we look at it. Yeah, so so give us some practical steps for doing that wherever you are. You know, finding those opportunities to really help lift people up through tourism? Because it's not, you know, you can't just Google that, right?
1: No, I mean, it is about, um, and I always say when you create relationships, if you never want to work, you know, first, the first off is negotiation of a relationship, right? Mm. And I always tell people, if you never want to see someone again, you make a great deal. If you're going to work with someone as a partnership, you make a good deal. So you talk about Mm. fairness, equality, and that everyone is, because we're, as tour operators, we're too focused on and our customers are too focused on price to a point where we nail down these prices and we screw down the prices so much that theres there's nothing for you know the the suppliers in the end. And so they start cutting on their end and that and that starts going to local wages, local people, and all those savings that you get when you buy a discounted programs all gets pushed down locally. So that's the first thing. Mm. Creating those relationships where everyone wins. And that's not common when you go into business school, you know, when you, you go into these negotiation classes it's about getting the upper hand in a conversation, getting the upper hand in negotiation, but when you're creating community and you're creating dialogue and you're creating partnerships and long-term relationships, the first thing is that mindset of everyone winning everyone and, and, and truly understanding it and being compassionate in business is, is really important. The only other thing that I kind of recommend to people all the time is know your customer Next. Mm. Um, so many times, people create products for themselves, mm. things that they would like, and uh, but know where your customers coming from. And so, I did a, a consulting project for a government agency in the Ozarks. And so, the Ozarks have a huge, you know, um, business for people within ten kilometer radius that live in the region that go to the Ozarks on the weekend. Yeah. But how do they build a product for a German market? How do they mm. b- build a program for a Canadian market? Japanese market, Asian, an Asian market in general. And, and there's no, and there's, and they're not, you know, the local communities there, they don't even understand that. They don't even understand that's an opportunity. So the first thing is knowing the potential of your market, Mm. know your market and create products for the potential of your market, not just your immediate market or for yourself. Because people generally make products when they, when they first start out of things that they would like. But think about it for, you know, if you want to attract Australians or, as I said, Asians, Europeans to come, that potential is there. And that, that also includes doing your research against your, your competitors, price points, all of those kind of things, knowing what market you're going after. Are you mid-market? Are you luxury? And if you are, what is your competitor? What are your comp- competing price points? Mm-hmm. And, and yeah, and and from there, use all the creativity in the world, but but know the framework that you're starting with the first.
0: So, you brought up price, and I think that's something that uh, people often think about when this uh, tour paradigm comes up because the group tour market has been very price sensitive for a long time. Yeah. And so, um, especially
1: now, it's, it's more so at the moment.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. So, uh, I have to imagine that this very mindful, conscious uh, way of traveling costs a bit more, maybe quite a bit more than, you know, your standard off the rack tour package. Am I wrong in that, or is that something that your customers accept and are, are happy with?
1: You know, it's our goal to not cost more. Mm. I mean, sometimes, you know, um, and we don't we don't cost more, and that's why we're successful globally at what we do. And we only achieve that through volume. So G Ventures is the largest in the world. So we were able to actually offer, a, a, you know, much more sustainable and responsible program you're right, though. The customer wants all of that, and it's not its not free. Um, now, we're able to achieve that. We're probably the closest in the world when it comes to matching, you know, those price points just because of sheer volume. Um, but it is our goal at G-Adventures. We try our hardest, and we don't always achieve it. Like, sometimes it is a little bit more expensive to to do what we do, especially when you take into, you know, all of our Ripple score, all of our, you know, welfare guidelines. Now the sustainable side of the earth um, programs that we're putting in to match the the, you know, the scotland Deco- declaration which we signed that stuff doesn't come free and it's sometimes a little bit more expensive but it doesn't have to be a lot and it just has to become more regular and And more and more people have to do it as the demand increases so there's a little bit of responsibility on the customer because when you, when there's more demand we all have to do it and then the price comes down
0: so speaking of demand demand is crazy in travel right now in general it was starting to get crazy even before the pandemic we were having conversations about over-tourism as an organization that operates in a lot of places with a lot of tours. How are you confronting issues of over-tourism and what do you see G Adventure's role in solving that problem should be?
1: Yeah. Another great question. This is a great interview. (laughs) Thanks. Well, I'll tell you that, um, you know, over-tourism is, it was a buzzword prior to, um, and so I was much more concerned about it because And everyone focused on Venice or Mm -hmm. pyramids of Egypt or Machu Picchu. And really those issues are problems, but they're very different problems Mm -hmm. because those destinations are no longer tourism destinations. They're they're run closer to theme parks, right? Mm -hmm. Venice now charges an entry fee to enter Venice. Yeah. So it's, it's, and you know, the pyramids of Egypt, the same thing. You, You line up in rows, like these, these, these rows of people to get into a pyramid, just like you would a ride at Disney. Yeah. And so, These destinations have very different challenges in terms of volume, but they can also, they're also set up to move, you know, millions of passengers through them. Mm -hmm. And so like the Louvre in in France, uh, in Paris, I mean, these, these destinations are run very differently. And when we talk about over tourism, you know, no one's talking about, you know, there's, there's an overall push in our, in, in the world to go more and more remote. People are wanting to go more and more remote, especially in this wired world that we live in, Mm -hmm. more and more people want to disconnect. And so that's the threat of over tourism to me, because no one is looking at when when you're going to visit like more fragile communities. A group of 50 could be over tourism, mm-hmm. right? A group of 50 coming every Tuesday and Thursday to a small community that ha- that spends money at these communities. Suddenly, kids are not going to school those days, mm-hmm. yeah. And suddenly they're making you know spending time instead of studying um, are making crafts to sell tourists. Mm. And suddenly you see social impact and cultural impact because, you know, they're not going to school and that goes for, on the bigger scale in cruise ships. So you have Anguilla, which has a population of 9,000 people and a ship could come with 6,000 people yeah. it can almost double the population for eight hours. Mm. People could spend over a hundred thousand, that ship can spend over a hundred thousand dollars at our pier, And suddenly kids aren't going to school on the days their ships. And you're having that kind of cultural, so over tourism is a very complex issue. Um, and it has to be looked at all sides. And so, you know, so I'm in conversations with many different, so in terms of what we do about it, you know, we have very little because Our groups are so small, mm. but we're very, we're involved in the conversation. I'm involved in many conversations, offering my time with many mm. organizations, whether it's local tourism authorities or global um, tourism uh, associations. About how we tackle it and how we define it in the future. My, what I do is I'm trying to get out to the world and to the tourism industry about how we define what over tourism is, mm. right? And how it is a bigger problem than we think. But it's not. A, it's not necessarily these highly scaled destinations that aren't really tourism destinations anymore. They're theme parks, like the Great Wall of China, is a theme park. You have an entry fee. You pay for. You know, you have a guide on. It's. It's not. It's not like a fragile community where people are going in to see where you can yeah. really have impact. And so we have to expand that spectrum of how we define success solving this this problem.
0: So in 1989, 1990, you saw a, a future in tourism that didn't exist yet. And, and you have mm. proven that concept. I wonder if you can polish up that crystal ball again and try to look another 10, 20 years into the future. Where do you think travel is headed? Where do you think the traveler is headed? And uh, what are some things that we can do as an industry to try to move toward that vision in a positive and sustainable way?
1: Um, you know, it's another great question, but you know, and it's never been clearer than right now. If you'd have asked me this question pre-corona, I wouldn't have had a very clear answer. I'd have made something up, mm. but, <laughs> I have a clear, but you know, it's so much clearer right now, now that we've been through this pandemic and you know, the travel industry is almost, in a, we've been forced into the startup mode because we were all forced to, Going into hibernation, mm-hmm. we have to restart our businesses, mm-hmm. and so we're all looking now is is, is how the power dynamic is going to reshuffle because the customer is going to be different. That's mm-hmm. the best thing that could ever happen to us as a travel industry. So what I will see, what I see is in the, in the future is that people will travel longer and deeper. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you know the flight shaming that was going on just before, and carbon emissions and all that was happening. You know, Greta Thunberg and all that was going on just before the pandemic. So people are already questioning. You know, why travel and and all of those things kind of came to a head with the pandemic. And, you know, we have a carnal desire to explore. Like it's it's in us. It's in us as, as human beings. Yeah. And I think that, you know, but the idea of taking, you know, three holidays a year, one week, you know, one week on the beach holidays is not as popular. Is not going to be as popular in the future. Taking these, you know, junket trips for five day cruises or whatever. You know, people will want to, are going to be more, there's going to be inherent risk in the future because coronavirus has not gone away. It's not going away. Right. We're learning to live with it, which is which is what we should do. So, so if you're going to travel now, it's because it's important to you. Mm. And if it's important to you, you're going to be more meaningful and they'll be purposeful on why you want to travel and where you're going to go. Because just before the pandemic, people didn't care where they went. They bought amenities. It was about buying you know ten restaurants to choose from, Broadway shows, indoor zip lining. You know there was a race to the bottom on amenities and entertainment, mm. and the destination was no longer relevant. Um, and I think that the destination becomes very relevant to people in the future. And instead of going for a five day or a 10, a, a one week trip, you know, stay two weeks or three weeks and go deep and really see the country and, and travel around, stay longer and deeper. I keep saying it won't be everyone. There's always going to be a mainstream market, but it just take, but that market is so huge. It just takes a small part of the way people look at travel to change to have a massive um, change on the landscape of our industry.
0: So in addition to running a tour company, you have found time to uh, author a couple of books and you just released a documentary film. Tell us about The Last Tourist, what it's about and where people can find it.
1: Ah, thank you. Um, well, the Last Tourist was a labor of love. It started off as just a five. It we've been working on it for five years. Start out, you know, we started off as just like let's because we have a whole content department. Maybe we could just film a documentary about our story. Um, but with iPhones and just mm. edit something very quick ourselves. It, and it wasn't like, and it was just a sh- like a more documentary short for our own purposes. Uh, but then, you know, we decided we should get a director cause it was a bigger story. And then the, when the director came on, it turned out like, let's take G adventures out of it. This is a whole industry. Mm. And so, um, so G adventures never even mentioned in the film. Um, and it just becomes a story about the potential of travel. Then Corona hit and now it's become such a meaningful film to people. Mm. Um, And it was and it's about the potential of travel. I mean, it is very there's some harsh realities on where travel was and is. um, But the whole the overall message of The Last Tourist is a message of hope of how tourism can truly be a transformational industry where anyone who touches. It's not just a one way conversation where I buy a luxury holiday and I demand service you know, with all the comforts of home when I travel to a foreign country, it's more so a community approach to travel where everyone benefits and everyone shares in the fact that you are traveling and everyone's lives are changed mm. by the mere decision to go on holidays. And so, yeah, so it's, we just actually finished our kind of pay-per-view and now it's available in the States on Hulu and all kind of other streamers and in Canada. Everyone can see it. And if you want to just go to Apple TV, you can, um, you can rent it anytime. And, you know, you're supporting a great movement and a lot of people, you know, this is not a for profit kind of thing. There's not a hell, you know, a ton of money being made, um, with the last tourist, it's definitely a labor of love, no return on investment on that project. I'll just say that right now. <laughs> um, and there's so many people that benefit from the message in it. So, you know, go, go take a look at it. It's, it's a great film. It's doing amazing too. It's surpassed all of our distributors, our projections for the film
0: yeah fantastic so if people want to follow you online or uh, learn more about the company where are the best places for them to do that
1: thanks for asking again um so gadventures.com is obviously for the company um we have uh uh, many different social sites whether it's facebook or instagram for me personally i'm bruce poontip so i'm on i'm only on instagram and twitter i'm not Mm -hmm. on facebook but um very active there in terms of posting you know what i do but but g adventures has You know, we have 18 to 30 something channel on Instagram, Facebook, TikTok. We have, they have them all for G adventures. Yeah. And you can join or you can just go to g adventures.com.
0: Yeah. Wonderful. So uh, we have a few questions we ask everybody uh, before we let them go. And these are uh, low key just for fun. So you can shoot from the hip. Uh, Number one, do you select a window seat or an aisle seat? Window. Yeah.
1: Cause I sleep, Mm. I sleep and I lean up. So I, I sleep amazingly on planes. I've, I've learned I've I've evolved into a plane sleeper, yeah. so I have to have a window. Yeah,
0: yeah, nice. So, what's one thing in your carry-on that you would never travel without?
1: I always travel with a full um, per, um, prescription for um, teeth. So, mm-hmm. in case dental, so dental is a big issue because if, if you have to wake up with a toothache anywhere in the world, you need dental. So, mm-hmm. I have like antibiotics. I have painkillers. And I renew those, I knew, I renew those um, prescriptions every year, and I always carry them. And I've, you'd be shocked at how many times I've had to use them, not for myself. Yeah. I've never had to use them in my 30s of traveling. I've never had a toothache on the road, but, but I use them all the time because someone else has a toothache, and they just need to you know, maintain um, the pain until yeah. they can get to a proper dentist, depending on where you are in the world, and not wanting to rely on local dental care. Um, and you have you know, and you just wake up with pain. Um, so I every it seems every year that I renew my subscription, it's been used, but it's because I found someone along the way that needed it. Yeah, um, but I always carry um, those kind of things. Um, also, you know, a, a, quite a, a pharmacy of medications for <laughs> um, dysentery and all these kind of sleeping and all these kind of things that you need. Yeah, um, that I don't think you find in anyone else's pack.
0: Yeah, no, that's fascinating. So uh, if you had a free airline pass and nothing else to do for a week, where would you head next?
1: At the moment, Japan. Mm. I've got a calling for Japan because Japan was the trip that was canceled, which I haven't gone back to Was when I was going when I was when, when the pandemic hit. Um, and I was going specifically to see a international sumo wrestling championship. Wow. Because uh, like recently the Mongolians have been winning the, the national championships. And of course the Japanese think their, their sport is being stolen. So there's a, quite a controversy in the sumo wrestling community, which I don't actually know anything about, but it's just another fascinating cultural experience going to a championship. And I had tickets um, to go to Japan, And but my desire is to do that. But also I've been to Japan numerous times, but I want to see rural Japan. Mm. My goal is to get out of this into the farming communities and fishing villages and see rural Japan, which I have a,
0: just a, a, a
1: new uh, a, a, a in moment fascination for it right now. So that's that's where I'd go if you asked me today.
0: Oh, yeah. Wonderful. So last question. What is something you have seen or done on the road that you wish you could experience again with somebody you love?
1: Mm. Wow, that's a huge question. I would have to say I saw so many things before I had kids. Mm-hmm. Right. And so I've returned to many things with um, kids. But, you know, you're asking for a thing, but can I say a place? Yeah, sure. Um, Namibia. So I've spent beautiful, I, like I'm in love with Namibia and I love that country. Um, it's got everything. It's got the coast, the skeleton coast. It's got the the, the dunes, those beautiful sand dunes. Plus it's got safari, safaring in a Tasha game reserve. I just think it's just such a diverse, beautiful country, peaceful country too. and doesn't have a lot of the same kind of, you know, some countries in, in Africa that have political issues. It's a uh, German history, German settlement, uh, interesting German influence there. A fascinating country, and I love it. And I've been there numerous times, but um, it's somewhere where I'd love, to, I'd love to show people that I love of how beautiful it is because it's so unknown.
0: Yeah. Wow, that's wonderful. Bruce Poon Tip. this has been fantastic. I could keep going for another hour. We're going to let you go, but thanks for being with us, and I hope you'll join us again sometime soon. Thank
1: you. Thanks for having me, and I'll be here anytime you ask.
0: Wonderful. Thank you. Well, everybody, I sure hope you enjoyed that conversation with the amazing and insightful Bruce Poon Tip. I know I certainly did. He gave me a lot to think about. So I want to recap some of the most insightful things that he shared to make sure that you don't miss them and you can continue thinking about them and implementing them as you plan and promote and lead your trips. One of the things that Bruce said was that Companies should know where their money is going and you should ask questions about the impact companies have when you are planning travel. You know, it's easy to think that when you travel to a new country, a new community, a new destination, that the money that you're spending there is directly impacting locals who live and work there. And to some degree, that's true. But if you begin looking into who owns what in travel, you would be surprised to find out how many hotel companies or tour companies or other significant travel vendors are owned by multinational corporations, companies outside the destination where they're actually serving you. And if you're looking to maximize the impact of your travel dollar, well, that might not be the way you want to go. So ask your travel partners where the money's going. And if they can't answer, now well, that probably tells you They're not invested in value-based community impact tourism, perhaps the way that you're looking for. Another thing Bruce said was that if you're never going to see somebody again, you make a great deal. If you want to work with somebody as a partner, though, you make a good deal. Now, he went on to say that as tour operators and customers, we're so focused on price that there's nothing left for the suppliers in the end. And so even if you are traveling with impact in mind and you're trying to make sure your travel dollars reach the workers in the communities you visit, if you are one of these people that is so fixated on getting the best price, well, there's not gonna be much of that money left to make a positive impact on the lives of the people working there. And uh, I think this is something that, well, if I'm honest, I have probably been guilty of in the past. And I would say that many people in the tourism industry have been guilty of. You know, it's no secret that group tours, especially, have long been considered a value proposition. And many people take group tours because they perceive them as being more affordable than other modes of travel. Well, maybe it's time that we as an industry began to change that paradigm. And instead of looking for how we can provide the lowest price to our customers, we find out how we can provide the best experience. And in doing so, make the most positive impact on the places we're visiting finally bruce said that in the future people are going to travel longer and deeper he said we have a carnal desire to explore it's in us as human beings and he said if you're going to travel now it's because it's important to you and you are going to be more purposeful now, i think in light of the pandemic and a couple of years that people spent at home not doing anything that is the case indeed. And I think we can capitalize on that as an industry, not only to get back to where do we need to be in terms of sales and volume, but also to make sure that the experiences we're providing are deep and meaningful. And we're not just taking people someplace where they can have a drink and an ice cream, go to a show, buy a t-shirt, and check something off their bucket list. The world is vast and full of huge and amazing travel opportunities. But we, as leaders in tourism, have to be the ones to unearth them. Great stuff there from Bruce Poon Tip. Now, before we wrap up the show today, I wanna return to this idea from Colorado about municipalities voting to use some tourism tax to accomplish local initiatives. Now, since that seems to have taken hold in Colorado, we will probably see it continue to spread throughout the country. I'm not sure it's the best idea. That is the topic of today's Hot Minute. Yeah, that's right. The Hot Minute is the segment of the show where I take 60 seconds to give you my unfiltered views on an issue impacting travel every day. Now, today we're going to talk about the impact of taxation on travel. So let's put 60 seconds on the clock and get into it. Here's the problem with increasing tourism taxes. Even if you're planning to use the money for good things around your city, every dollar that you add to a hotel guest's bill at the end of their stay makes your destination that much more unaffordable. And you know it's ironic that these destinations are probably using some of these fundings for affordable housing and other initiatives that they view as decreasing inequality locally but by increasing taxes to do it, they are actually contributing to inequality in the travel industry. You see, there are some destinations, Colorado is certainly among them, that are becoming so unaffordable through inflation, through taxation, through demand, that they're basically inaccessible to anyone below, let's say, the upper middle class. Now, I don't think that's wise. I don't think it's sustainable. I don't think it's in the best interest of travel, and ultimately, I don't think it's in the best interest of the world. That's the way I see it. You are welcome to disagree with me, of course, and we will still be friends. Disagree, agree, doesn't matter. We would love to hear from you. You can email us at podcast at grouptravelleader.com with your thoughts or questions. I read every email that comes into that address, and you never know, your idea or question or comment might just be the topic of the next hot minute. And hey, while you're in the mood to give us some feedback, would you do me a favor? Go to your podcast player of choice, give us a rating, leave us a review. It's a tremendous help, and you have my thanks. My thanks as well to Bruce Poon Tip for joining us. Now, on the next episode of the podcast, I'm going to bring you a conversation with Christopher Elliott, who is a consumer advocate, and the author of the travel troubleshooter column that you see in newspapers all around the country. It's gonna be a great conversation. You won't wanna miss that. Until then though, remember this, at the end of the day, we're all on this trip together. So let's make it a good one. See you next time on Gather and Go. Gather and Go is hosted and executive produced by me, Brian Jewell. Our publisher is Mac Lacey. Donya Simmons is our creative director. Ashley Ricks is our circulation manager and graphic designer. Our sales team is Kyle Anderson and Bryce Wilson. To advertise on the podcast, call Kyle or Bryce at 888-253-0455. Gather and Go is a production of the Group Travel Leader. For more information about our magazines, podcasts, and events, visit us online at grouptravelleader.com.